0: Personally, as a clinician, it just breaks my heart that people have experienced long COVID and really makes me want to get everybody vaccinated even more so because that has been shown some promise in decreasing the long COVID effects.
1: Welcome to Healthy Conversations. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft, and today I'm in Healthy Conversations with Dr. Kirsten Anderson. She's a senior medical director for New England, for Aetna and CVS Health. Welcome to Healthy Conversations, Dr. Anderson. Like me, you're trained in internal medicine, and you've had a really fascinating career to date, blending internal medicine, epidemiology, and now your positions with Aetna and CVS.
0: Yep. I trained in internal medicine, but I always had an interest in public health and specifically epidemiology. And so I really think that working at Aetna and CVS Health is a way of reaching, educating a large population. You have, you know, four million people a day visiting our pharmacies, a couple hundred thousand employees. All of those people can be reached with the messaging that we can bring to them clinically to keep them healthy. Working in a place like that in CVS Health is a really good way to do public health to improve the health of a population.
1: Right, because blending the population that comes through your pharmacies and through your sort of payer network, you get a tremendous amount of data. What kind of public health data can you parse and insights just from maybe who buys what in a pharmacy or all the way to what billing codes are are being utilized?
0: To your point, we can figure out how many people saw the doctor for COVID, how many people saw the doctor for a fever, or how many people saw the doctor for long COVID. Marry that with the data from CVS Health, which talks about how many people got a vaccine, how many people went to the pharmacy, but then didn't get a vaccine. It affords us the ability to really reach out to people and to target them for specific education.
1: Now we're almost overwhelmed with data, but often the challenge is really making the meaning of that. And certainly in the setting of the pandemic, things moved a bit more quickly.
0: Yeah. If you think about the messaging that came out from this pandemic and all of the contradictory things that people heard and all of the changing advice, the concept that we held fast to was make it simple. Deliver a simple message to people so that they understand what to do. If it's too complicated, people will turn off and they will stop listening.
1: Kind of like the uh, drug packaging inserts that you get out of a pharmacy <laughs> are not particularly well, well designed for understanding. I know you've seen a lot of insights and impact of long COVID, like chronic fatigue type symptoms, respiratory issues, brain fog that can persist for months or some folks are still suffering from it two years after their initial infection. But recent studies have really shown a greater risk emerge in sort of this sort of middle phase for the majority of folks who are vaccinated and hopefully boosted. And that phase can often last for 12 weeks after the initial sickness and fade. So some have begun to call it, quote unquote, medium COVID. Is it really a a thing or just societies need to label everything as related to the pandemic?
0: (laughs) Medium COVID, I think, is just an extension of the initial acute phase of covid So you got in a cold and you just can't shake it and it takes a couple weeks or maybe it takes a month and you have a lingering cough. That's exactly what medium COVID, that's how I'd explain it. What I want to point out, though, is that if you're vaccinated, you have less of a chance of getting either medium or long COVID. So it's important for everyone to get vaccinated.
1: I think you and your team could provide some lessons to the CDC, which I argue in some ways didn't message things very well. You promised us vaccines would mean we wouldn't get COVID. Now it's more that it will ameliorate it and make the short and long-term complications much less likely. And the long COVID implications are sometimes much more scary than the acute.
0: We can think about where we've been and where we're going. Where we've been is a pandemic that killed a million people just in the United States And where we're going is to a place where we have three to 400 people die a day from COVID and 150,000 people a year. So how did we get from there to here? Vaccines have gotten us to the point where we can have a more normal life than we had during the pandemic. And that is a good message we can communicate to people.
1: Totally agree. Though we still see a shockingly high number of Americans who are not vaccinated, or sometimes feel like they think the pandemic's in a rearview mirror. And we're entering, as we speak, the fall and winter of 2022, where new variants are rising, and a relatively small percentage of folks have gotten the new bivalent booster. Have you learned ways to kind of engage, not necessarily the anti-vaxxers, but the folks who may be on the fence?
0: I think that there's a lot of acceptance around the flu vaccine. One of the important things is convenience. So people walk into the pharmacy, they pick up a tube of toothpaste, and then they get a flu vaccine. We are making it the same kind of convenient for the COVID vaccine and we're giving the COVID vaccine at the same time as the flu vaccines.
1: I did that myself. I, the, the CVS app reminded me I was <laughs> due for my flu booster. I uh, got scheduled and went in. I got the mouth washed, not the toothpaste this time. But, you know, it's going to have to become part of our... Uh, hopefully public health hygiene. Let's circle back a bit to this issue of, you know, medium to long COVID. I was, (laughs) I guess, fortunate or unfortunate to get COVID right before the vaccine came out. And I had one other time uh, after vaccine, but it was much more mild. There are some commonalities to the issues of what's now being termed long COVID. A study in Sweden found the chance of a pulmonary embolism was 30 times higher in the first month after being COVID positive. But that kind of went down to two times uh, the risk after 60 days. So now that we've seen that there's a lot of danger in the initial weeks, not months after COVID, how do you see that impact our need for treatment?
0: Right. So those are all really interesting studies that underlies the complexity of the virus that causes COVID. It really has a lot of different effects across all systems in your body. We've learned so much This pandemic, what are the medications if you're unfortunate enough to be in the hospital that really work? What are the medications that decrease your side effects, that decrease your chance of having blood clots and pulmonary embolism? We also have outpatient treatments, so we have Paxlovid, and that can be prescribed by the pharmacist to help people who are at risk of becoming severely ill. It's a little bit of hard medication to take because it has some side effects, but it's extremely effective in decreasing the symptoms and decreasing the length of infection. So you have a, a good way of protecting yourself if you're very vulnerable.
1: There's always shifting definitions of who's vulnerable, so many factors from genetic to other comorbidities you might have that have different paradigms. As you said, a pharmacist can prescribe Paxavid. Will we be in an era soon where... You've tested positive, your app knows you've tested positive because you have a digitally connected diagnostic, informs your clinician, your public health system, but also, you know, routes the Paxlovid prescription from your pharmacy and it arrives by drone or by delivery service at your door, particularly in those first couple of days when it's most effective.
0: We're uh, far off from that, especially the drone part delivering you Paxloved. But I think that one of the things that we really strive to do is the test to treat. Here's the way this works. So you've gone to CVS. You have had a test. It comes back positive. And within the medical record that we have at CVS, we can see that you don't have any contraindications, then that medication can be prescribed at the time. So right then. That's why it's important to have this interoperability so that we can get it off the shelf and into your hand.
1: I heard a report recently that we know about some of the social disparities from the pandemic, but that Mm -hmm. let's say in the African-American population, a much lower fraction who was eligible for Paxilvid ended up receiving it. Are there ways you've seen to sort of enhance the understanding that these antivirals can be particularly helpful?
0: So during the pandemic, we really partnered with all kinds of community organizations to get the word out about testing, about vaccination. We need to continue those partnerships and continue to get the word out to communities that may not traditionally have had a lot of access to health care.
1: What do we need to do to better educate the general public about you know, health literacy? And certainly that ties into the infodemic that we've seen in terms of folks who aren't just anti-science but just end up on the wrong side of the equation about understanding how medicine and, and science evolves.
0: I think it's a very pertinent question. You hear people who say, well, the CDC told us in the beginning we didn't need to wear masks and so why do we trust them now? I think we need to make it clear that science evolves. We get new data points. We understand more about diseases as time goes on. And there will be obvious missteps along the way when you're dealing with something that is moving as rapidly as a respiratory pandemic. It was not wishy-washy behavior. It was, in fact, being able to make decisions based on the information that you have today. That information may change tomorrow. The medical evidence develops. And that is a message that we know now we didn't know at the beginning of this pandemic. It's because we haven't had a pandemic in a very long time. So people are very used to having absolute answers about how to address diseases. When a new pandemic, there are no absolute answers. Bear with the scientists and bear with the public health experts because they're learning just as everybody else is.
1: It was called a novel virus for, for yeah. a reason. Yeah. And we certainly did accelerate knowledge about creating mRNA vaccines, virtual collaborations, uh, crowdsourcing, even the the long COVID population. What are some lessons and things that we failed to learn from the pandemic side?
0: So, and I must say, I have to reiterate this to my kids all the time, this is not necessarily about you. It's about you and your neighbors. But they say, mom, if I get COVID, I'll be fine. And I say to them, it's not about you. It's about your friends, grandparents, your friends, friends who are immunocompromised and you don't know about it. Your friend's parent who has a kidney transplant. People did come to understand in this pandemic that it's a respiratory illness that can be transmitted from person to person, but they didn't clearly see the chains of transmission and how important it is to break those chains.
1: 100%. So speaking again, back on the long COVID element, but for clinicians, I think most of us are familiar with the traditional now long COVID symptoms, severe fatigue, sometimes quote unquote brain fog, respiratory issues that are worse in the sort of medium to post-infectious phase. At least a Swedish and UK study found that the after effects decreased from 83% in the 4 to 12 weeks after illness, and the US has similar results. But that sort of trajectory isn't often homogeneous. How would you see we better educate health professionals of all sorts to understand that they can recognize when folks are, are not on the recovery path and what research and potential therapies might be available to them?
0: We've had questions like this along the way. And there are some research centers scattered across the United States, probably in every major city, where they're collecting information about long COVID. When people have long COVID, they tend to first see their primary care physician. It's an issue of educating primary care physicians and certain specialists around being on the lookout for these kinds of symptoms so that the people with long COVID can be counted and included in these studies that then will enable us to have a better understanding of the natural history of this disease.
1: And I would imagine with the Aetna data and insights from billing codes to also pharmacy records, you might start to identify who looks like they really are on the debilitating side of long COVID and identify who might qualify for a clinical trial.
0: There's a diagnosis code that a clinician can use for long COVID. Some clinicians use that, some of them don't. I know that clinicians don't like to do coding they they think it's just a uh, it's just an administrative thing that doesn't really pertain to them so one of the educational items that I would say would apply to both primary care physicians and certain specialists. If you think a patient has long COVID, put it on the claim, because then it gets to us, and then we can find those patients and do what you're suggesting, which is identify people who might be at higher risk, identify people who could benefit from an outreach.
1: And I would argue that the future is coming a bit faster than we might think Stanford colleague Mike Snyder and his lab published about a year ago that, yes, the Apple Watch could pick up who has COVID, you know, one or two days before they're symptomatic, which means they might get tested earlier, won't infect others. There's also prior work out of San Diego, the tech study that would find folks who have the flu. And, you know, ideally that taps into a more holistic crowdsourced set of knowledge that can drive epidemiologic and public health health measures. Right. A recent Brookings Institute study found that about 1.8 to 4 or so million full-time equivalents individuals could be out of work due to long COVID. So it has huge impacts to everything from supply chain, labor shortages in healthcare and, and beyond.
0: We've to treat long COVID like we treat any other disabling medical condition. It has a diagnosis, it is recognized. I've heard it described as sort of, you know, this wave of disability, this wave coming of people who are unable to work because of long COVID. It's a different epidemic and we need to address it with the policies that we have for leave and disability at every employer that enables people to manage that chronic illness. Personally, as a clinician, it just breaks my heart that people have experienced long COVID and really makes me want to get everybody vaccinated even more so because that has been shown some promise in decreasing long COVID effects.
1: And part of the challenge is with long COVID, it's a syndrome of diseases or heterogeneous groups. Some are pulmonary, some might be neurologic. Are you aware of any panel of, let's say, lab tests that could help make the quote-unquote long COVID diagnosis?
0: So when people come in with symptoms, we just check them for normal anemia, thyroid problems, things like that. So there is no one panel, but I think it's important to document and code so we can understand the magnitude of this problem.
1: I recently came across a paper where researchers had analyzed data from many folks in the long COVID diagnosis realm, and they'd found an increased level of about 12 proteins involved in oxidative stress, metabolic reprogramming, cell adhesion, which sort of facilitates cellular interactions compared to those who were negative for the longer impact. So I think we'll start to maybe be able to look at our proteome and metabolome and find more folks at risk. Even the National Institutes of Health has this new Recover Initiative where you can sign up at recovercovid.org and share your COVID experience, whether it's short, medium, or long, or even if you've never been infected, to help understand that broader picture. And there's also another crowdsource platform for health information called Stuff That Works, stuffthatworks.health. I think several hundred thousand people have shared what's worked and not worked for their short, medium, and long COVID. So I think we'll learn a lot from the power of the crowd.
0: But I'd like to caution that just a little bit. The power of the crowd is a good thing, but it needs to be confirmed with large-scale clinical trials.
1: Sure. It's more a matter of maybe getting a more heterogeneous group, not just the usual suspects, (laughs) into our databases. We're all familiar with the Framingham trial driven by, I think, mostly Caucasian nurses in Western Massachusetts, which still drives a lot of our, let's say, cardiovascular who gets a statin. So a large prospective study and literature review of long COVID found that women are more likely than men to experience both the physical and psychological symptoms, including autoimmune rheumatic conditions, fatigue, depression. Do you have any thoughts about this sort of finding and why some people might be more susceptible? And how can we help medical professionals address the disparities in who gets diagnosed and what might best help them?
0: So the way we phrase it here is that women are the chief medical officers of their families, what I suspect might be happening is that women are in tune to their health, to the health of their families, and they are more likely to seek medical care. And I'm not sure whether women are more susceptible, but they're maybe more aware. Um, if we really do think that there's true disparities around you know, women getting long COVID more than men, then again, it's something that we need to make our healthcare professionals aware of.
1: There's been examples in the last few months where a Australian company called Resap uh, was acquired by Pfizer. They developed the, the ability to listen to your, your voice or your breath or your cough and determine is that a cold croup from RSV as we have right now or COVID.
0: Yeah, that's pretty neat.
1: Have you seen anything else interesting in that space?
0: Well, what I think is interesting in that space is what we're doing right now with virtual, really trying to encourage people to connect with a clinician virtually. I'd like to encourage people to try to do that. So all over the country, we just do not have enough doctors and nurses and practitioners to see everybody. And so using digital care, using virtual care to take care of some of these things, I think solves a big problem. Let's say you go to your primary care doctor for a visit. You can't get in to see that doctor for another year. I mean, that's the case with me. I can't see my primary care physician. I can see him once a year. Okay, So what do I do in the interim? I can talk to him virtually. I think we need to think out of the box. We need to make sure that people have access, that they can seek different kinds of practitioners in proportion to the severity of their illness.
1: And COVID certainly been an accelerant for, let's say, virtual care, digital health in general. Have you seen some new solutions emerge, and, and what might you think you'd ask the powers that be to help uh, generate next?
0: Well, I'd ask the powers that be to fund public health. So if you think about this from a historical perspective, we had most of the diseases in our country and our world, they were due to public health problems, like proper sewage, disposal, lack of clean water, diseases that we got from burning coal, anemias because of nutritional issues. So we had this constellation of issues that made us sick and that were fixed by public health. And we don't remember that. In this country, we spent a long time not thinking about public health, and then we get a pandemic of this magnitude, and we don't know what to do. And because our public health infrastructure has been so... Decimated. It's a shell of what it could be. And so if I would ask for something in the future, I would ask for funding for public health. So the next time someone says, call your public health department, it's not something that operates from nine to five, Monday through Friday, there would actually be people there who could help you. And that's what I think we need. We also need more trust in public health. Many public health officials have resigned. They've been threatened. And so... Shoring up trust in the public health system and funding that. That's going to be critical for the next time we encounter one of these. You need that leadership. You need leadership in public health to be able to say, you know, A, you can trust us, B, we're doing this for you.
1: How do we address that trust issue? Some see Dr. Fauci as a hero, as I do, and others are demonizing him. We teach sex ed in high school, she would be teaching uh, public health and epidemiology and how to understand clinical trials and vaccines and, and help people realize that most of our longevity, you know, went from 40 something years of average life expectancy, hundred so years ago to 70 plus. It was all mostly driven by public health measures, not by fancy anti-cancer uh, gene therapies.
0: Yeah. Teaching it in school would be a great idea.
1: I recently actually heard a talk from Michael Milken, of all people, about a little bit of the history of public health, going back to... You know, the polio epidemic, and when the Salk vaccine came around, there were some similar, let's say, issues of distrust and folks not rushing to get it for them or their kids. And it turned out when they found the right public figure to take it, it changed the perspective, and that was Elvis Presley. <laughs> uh, so, who's the Elvis Presley of 2022, 2023 who might help move the needle from some of the folks who are? public health or vaccine-resistant?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. We've had all kinds of people try to be the Elvis Presley. Each generation has their own Elvis Presley, so I'm not sure that just one figurehead would do it in this age of social media. One of the things that we find drives patient behavior is fear and anxiety. And one of the things that I was very honored to do over the past several years of this pandemic was to be a voice of sort of calm within the organization and also for our customers is to be able to say, here's what we know, here's what we're going to expect, and here's what you could do. And that serves to reduce anxiety. It reduces people's anxiety about the future. It reduces their anxiety that leads to unnecessary ER visits. Reducing that anxiety is really important in keeping a calm and healthy workplace. And so I think that it's important that we not only have public health messages from the CDC, but every place that you can get a message at your pharmacy, at your employer, is the right place to say, here's what we know, here's what we should do about it, and here's what you can do to protect yourself.
1: Well, Dr. Kirsten Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today on Healthy Conversations.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kraft.
1: And you can find other Healthy Conversations at healthyconversations.health.